Let's open up now our Bibles to James chapter 1 as we are continuing our study of this wonderful letter from our brother James. James chapter 1, we are going to be picking back up where we left off. That has us in verse 16. The book of James has already had so much wisdom for us. Just We've only been 15 verses in and, and he has had so much to say to us. I trust it's been as helpful for you as it has been for me. If nothing else, I'm benefiting greatly from getting to study the book of James every week. Let's stand now together as you are able in honor of the word of the Lord. As we hear the word of God from James chapter 1 verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, perfect, pure, inerrant word. Lord, this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us, that, Lord, we are so grateful that, that you would show us this kindness, that through your word we hear the voice of our God, we come to know our God, that by your Spirit's work through your word we are transformed into the likeness of our Savior. And that is our prayer this morning, that, that by your Spirit, through your word, we would be transformed. That our lives would be conformed to the likeness of Christ, our great God and Savior. That, Lord, we pray even boldly that any who are, who are in this room, any who are hearing my voice, who do not know you, that by that same spirit you would call them to life. You would give to them that they would respond in faith. Pray, God, that you would be glorified through the preaching of your word. And I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Having the right perspective is a powerful thing. It's one of James's big goals in writing this, that we would have the right perspective, the true perspective, that we would live like Christians, that we would think like Christians. Having the wrong perspective is a disastrous thing. Leads us to all kinds of wrong conclusion. Years and years ago, I was working at the tennis club in South Bend, and a teammate of mine would, would come over. And the, and the tennis club in South Bend is situated right next to some pretty sketchy apartments uh, that Andrea and I used to live in when we were newlyweds. And, uh, and I, would, I would work late at night, and one of my college teammates would come over at the end of, of closing, and we'd play tennis until about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning uh, alone in this racket club. And so one night we were doing this, and no, the owner did not appreciate it. Uh, but we did it all the time. Uh, and so one night, we've been playing tennis. It's maybe 2 o'clock in the morning. And we are walking around and, and locking up the, the building in the dark. And this old building makes all kinds of noises while you're walking around. We're having the conversation. You know when you're closing up at night alone in here? It's kind of creepy. You don't know who's in here. You hope nobody. And you don't know what's going on. While we're having that conversation, a loud crash happens out front. And we're thinking, okay, that was something real. That just wasn't a creak. And we go and look. And sure enough, the front doors, the glass doors, there's two sets of them. And they're shattered in, in, in the size of a human. Just completely shattered out. 
and we're thinking somebody has actually broken in here in the middle of the night. And we kind of look down the hallway and we can see the guy. We can see this guy standing back there in the kind of uh, seating area in the back of, uh, of the entrance of the racket club. And we're like, this guy's in here. We got to get out of here. So we, we hightail it out the doors. We call 911 and, and the police come. And when the police come and we come back in the building with them, with all the lights on, what we realize is this. The guy that we saw standing back there was a Halloween decoration. A Halloween decoration that we saw uh, every single day for hours and hours. It was just a full-size skeleton that hung from the, the ceiling. And sure enough, someone had broken those windows out. There was a big old rock laying in there. Someone had, had broken in, but I think they saw us and probably ran away. We were not in danger. We were sure we were in great danger uh, when it was going on. In, in the dark, in the midst of the situation, we weren't just tempted to be afraid, we were terrified. It was a scary ordeal. With the lights on, Standing there with the police and a true perspective of what was actually in front of us, there was no more temptation to be afraid. We were kind of embarrassed at the terror we had felt. I mean, somebody did break in. We had to call the police. But, but, but we knew we weren't in any danger. We had never been in any danger. <clears throat> Having a true perspective showed us what was really going on in that building, and it was a Halloween decoration and not an intruder. So too in our lives, having the right perspective, seeing things as they really are makes all the difference. And James has been talking to us about the trials that we face and about the temptations that come as a part of trials. James wants to say to us today that having the right perspective will help us. It'll help us when we are facing temptation. It'll make all the difference. When, when we face the temptation to sin, we all need a true perspective. We all need to be seeing things rightly as they are if we're going to resist temptation and keep us from sinning. That's what we find here in the letter of James, a true perspective, a true perspective on life, a true perspective on ourselves. We began studying this topic last week in verses 13 through 15. Just look up there with me. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to death. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In those verses, James is teaching us how temptation works. He tells us where temptation comes from. It comes from within. We sin, as we saw last week, because of our own fleshly desires. And that, that doesn't deny that Satan tempts us. It doesn't deny that others tempt us. It doesn't deny that the world tempts us. But we learned last week that those outer temptations require an inner ally. One that, that is already inside of us our own evil desires, in order to lure us and entice us. There needs to be something in us that responds to that temptation. Others may provide the opportunity to sin. But temptation only works to actually draw us into sin if it finds a heart that's receptive because of unrighteous desires. The, the effectiveness of their temptation relies on the rest, receptivity of your heart to temptation. That's what James showed us 
last week. And so it is critical that we understand this perspective, this true perspective about temptation. Unless we realize this, unless we have the right perspective of temptation that, that, it, that it arises from within us, from the unrighteousness of our own hearts and desires, we will never take full responsibility for our sin. We'll, we'll attempt to shift the blame onto to someone else or something else, anything but us. Scripture teaches us, though, that we are wholly responsible. We are wholly responsible for our own sin. No matter what has been done to you, you are responsible for your sin. We're, we're blamed for sin because we're blameworthy. We, we don't sin out of duty. We don't sin out of obligation. No one in the history of the world has ever been forced into sin. We sin because we have a will to sin. And so it is, it is critical, James begins with, it is critical that we have the right perspective about how temptation works. But that's not the only thing that's critical. It's also critical that we have the right perspective about how to resist temptation when temptation comes. It's not enough just to know how it works. We want to resist temptation. We want to walk in obedience to God. So how do we resist temptation? That's what James is going to bring us to in these verses, verses 16 through 18. Let's look at them again. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James here gives to us three perspectives that we need to resist temptation. The first thing he tells us is this. We must recognize the deception of temptation. Do not be deceived. My beloved brothers, this is, this, there's such warmth and pastoral wisdom that James is giving to us here. He's not mad at us. God is caring for us in these words, my beloved brothers. He says, do not be deceived. Well, that's a simple command. Do not be deceived, but it's one that we often fail at. Do not be deceived. Don't be misled. Don't be led astray. Don't wander away from the truth. The fact that James has to give us this warning, the fact that he kind of begins with this warning in this section, reveals to us that deception is a very real threat to us. To to each one of us, deception is a real threat. Even as God's people, deception is a real threat. We are all in constant danger from the deception of temptation. And the worst part of deception is that you're deceived. And so you don't know that you've been deceived. You're fooled by it. So that's why the verb here is in the present tense. Because we're all in constant danger of the deception of temptation. It is in the present tense. We must remain vigilant against temptation. And the source of temptation that James is most concerned with is that which is within each one of us. As he said in verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. There is a threat, a real threat to your faith, and it lies within you. There remains in you a fleshly desire that tempts you. Because our hearts are deceitful above all things, we especially need to realize the deception of temptation when we face trials. 
As we saw last week, trials always have a corresponding temptation that goes along with them. The trials themselves are not temptation. God does not send us temptation. But temptations have a way of latching themselves onto trials. And so every trial is going to have its corresponding temptations. For example, trials can wear you out, exhaust you mentally, physically, emotionally. And and when you're worn out, you might be tempted to gratify your flesh, believing that you deserve a little indulgence after the trial that you've been enduring and all you're walking through. Trials might stress you out. And when you're stressed, you might be tempted to give into anger, to give into bitterness or anxiousness or a complaining spirit. Believing that these sinful attitudes are justified because after all, you're in a very stressful time right now. Worst of all, trials may strain your relationship with God. And as you go through your trial, you're tempted to distrust God, to to question God's character, wondering why would a loving God let me go through a trial like this? Questioning whether he's loving. Questioning if he's even good. Or at least maybe you're not questioning that in the abstract, but you're wondering, is he loving and good to me? I know God God loves and I know God is good, but does he love me? Is he being good to me? In each of these situations, temptation is lying to us. It, It lies about who we are. It lies about what the situation really is. It lies to us about who God is. And so in order to resist temptation, we must recognize the deception of temptation. We we must guard against it with the truth. We must so fill our minds with the truth that we are able to recognize the lies of temptation. The deception that is coming at us. that, that, That we can see it. That we can resist it. Second, in order to resist temptation, we need to remember the goodness of God. This is part of that filling our minds with the truth. Verse 17, every good gift... Every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What what a statement. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. The, The source, Christian, of all true good in your life is God. All true good, anywhere, at any time, comes directly from God. He is the reason that there is good in the world. Without him, there would be no good. There's good only for one reason. It's because he is good and because he gives good gifts. That's the only reason there's any good in our lives at all. And in the context of this chapter, as James has been bringing us to this point, it's clear what particular good gifts he has in mind that he's speaking of. It's those gifts that that he has been teaching us about, steadfastness and maturity. Those are front and center in view, as James tells us, that every good gift and every perfect gift is coming down to us from the Father of lights. In verses 3 and 4, he said, You know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That, that describes maturity. So steadfastness and maturity are the two purposes 
There are at least two purposes anytime you're going through a trial. Two purposes of God, and God is doing much more than we could possibly comprehend in any situation. But for sure, two things. God is working in you, steadfastness and maturity. And what better gift could we have? If, if every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from, from the Father of lights, what better gift could he give us than to give us Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Well, what better gift is that? What more perfect and good gift is there than that? And all the gift giving that's going to be happening over the next couple of weeks, none of the gifts that will be given and received by human beings to one to another, no one will open their present and go, well, now I am complete. Now I lack nothing. Well, somebody might say that, like somebody gets an engagement ring and they do that. You complete me. No, you don't. You'll be tired of them at some point. You get married at 19 and then you wake up next to a guy like me one day. It's not perfect. No, he gives good and perfect gifts. James here says all these good and perfect gifts, verse 17, are from above. Coming down from the Father of lights. James makes it plain that the good and perfect gifts, such as steadfastness, such as maturity, don't come from within us. We don't generate these things, they come only from God. That, that, that phrase, from above, it's pointing up to heaven. The phrase coming down is it's picturing God's gracious gifts falling down in this in this never ending cascade of goodness and perfection. They are they are just from above and they are just falling down, raining down on his children and they accomplish exactly what he intends for them to accomplish, what his purposes are for them. And notice here, James calls God the father of lights. It's the only place in scripture that God has called that name, the father of lights. Now, the idea that, that God created the heavenly lights, we see that throughout scripture. To begin with, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. He's the father of lights. He created light. And then in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 1, we read this, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. In other Old Testament scriptures, it confirms God's the creator of the, the lights, the heavenly lights, the celestial bodies. Psalm 74, verse 16, yours is the day. Yours is the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. Psalm 136, verses 7 through 9, praises God. Praises God as the one who made the great lights, as well as the sun and the moon and the stars. So God then is the father of lights. God, so to speak, gave birth to them. He created them. They come from him. But why does James choose this title for God, this name for God right here, right now? Why this unique phrase, the father of Lights. Well, he did so to make a point about God's nature. He's going to compare God, the father of lights, with those lights that he has created. He is unlike them. James says there's no variation or shadow due to change. From, from our perspective, 
puny as it may be down here on earth, the heavenly lights appear to constantly change. The sun rises and the sun sets. Shadows move across the earth as the sun makes its way across the sky. The moon waxes and wanes. The stars shift their position in the night. From an earthly perspective, it appears to us that everything above is constantly in flux, constantly changing. But unlike the lights that God has made, there is no change in the Father of lights. What a comforting truth that is. There is no change in him. He has not changed since he created the lights. He still gives good and perfect gifts. This creator who made the world, who spoke all things into existence, who who gave good and and wonderful and perfect gifts to, to the man and the woman that he created, the giver of good gifts, even after the fall, even after the curse, even after sin has entered into the world, this father of lights in whom there is no changing, no variation, still gives good gifts. What an astounding thing. He's changeless. The, the psalmist says this in Psalm 102, verse 25. He, he's praising God that God is not like his creation. And he says this, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. God is unchanging. The theological term for this is immutability. Immutability means this. It means that God has not changed in his essence. He has not changed in his character. He has not changed in his purposes or his promises. He is eternally, forever and ever, unchanging. So here's what that means. If God was ever good, God is forever good. If God was ever the giver of good and perfect gifts, he eternally remains the giver of good and perfect gifts. Gifts and friends, this is especially important to fill our minds with when we are in the midst of trials. This is who our God is. This is what God's doing in this precise moment. Is that not amazing? Christian, at this moment in your life, and and we are. In all kinds of different moments in our life. Some of you, you're in a, in a season of, it's just, you're flying high. You're, you're, you're home from college. You don't have any homework. Your neighbors are the best people on the planet. <laughs> you're in a great time right now. Others, others, you feel like you got one nostril above the waves. And even that one keeps getting filled up with water and you don't know how you're going to go on and you don't know how you're going to make it. Here's what's true for every one of us in this very moment. The father of lights in whom there is no change is being kind to you. He is giving you good and perfect gifts. We can't, we can't see it. We can't even feel it most of the time from our perspective. We've got to stuff our minds full of the truth. We've got to believe what God has said is true. If God was ever good, he is forever and always unchangingly good. 
We need to remember in those moments of trial the unchanging goodness of God. Our situation changes. God never changes. Our our trials are like a cloud passing in front of the sun. And Brother Mel could tell you this. He's, He's seen it hundreds of times on gloomy, dark, stormy days where from our puny perspective, we look up and all we see are dark clouds. And as far as we're concerned, the sun must not exist anymore. What happens if you get in a jet and start to elevate your perspective? And you pass through those dark and stormy clouds and it gets darker and it gets darker and you come to the other side and it turns out the sun is blazing, clear and bright with no obstructions. We can't see it from our lowly perspective. We can't see it from our limited perspective on the ground, but if our perspective would elevate, we'd see how radiant the sun was shining. The sun is still doing all that it does for our planet. To us, it looks like the sun might as well be dead. The truth is the sun's still doing its work. Likewise, trials seem to cast a shadow over the goodness of God at times. And yet, God remains good. Even if we cannot see it. Due to our perspective in that moment. Even if we can't see it because our our circumstances are so weighing us down and we can't see past them. Whatever is happening in your life, you must not doubt that God is good. Do not doubt his goodness by giving into temptation and trading God's truth for deception. Don't doubt God's goodness by by putting your trust in yourself when things get hard. by, By growing anxious and thinking it's all on you, and so you even find yourself neglecting to pray, neglecting to seek him first. Don't doubt his goodness by questioning who he is and all that he has promised to you in his word. The perspective that you need, no matter what is happening to you, is this. God is unchangingly good. He's good all the time. And so he's good to you. He's good to you. He hasn't stopped being good to you. He will not stop being good to you. Romans 8, 28. Really is true. We hear this verse a lot. And people, use, people throw it out as if it's some trite saying. Some band-aid that covers everything. But it's true. For all who trust in Christ, we know That for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. The reason that all things work together for good is that the sovereign hand of God extends from the good heart of God. Whatever God's sovereign hand has given you, it is coming out of his goodness. It's coming out of his kindness. As, as, as hard as that is for us to comprehend. So resist temptation by filling your mind with truth about who God is. And about God, what God has promised to us in his word that he is doing. The unchanging goodness of God. Third, if we're to resist temptation successfully, we must receive the hope of the new birth. Live in the hope of the new birth. Verse 18, of his own he brought us forth 
by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In this verse, James is, is describing for us the spiritual birth that God has given those whom he has redeemed. And don't miss, don't, don't miss those first words. Of his own will. Not, not our free will in choosing him, but his free will in choosing us. He gives salvation to whomever he will. Ken Hughes in his commentary says it like this. Just as God acted freely in his goodness when he created the universe, he also freely chose to bring us to himself. Everything in salvation was and is of God. We are God's people because of a total act of grace rooted in God's unprompted goodness. Of his own will, James says, God brought us forth. Literally, he gave birth to us. The, the, the way he gave us spiritual birth, James tells us, is by the word of truth. By the word of truth. That's a phrase that refers to the gospel. We see this throughout the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, the Apostle Paul writes, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He writes again in Colossians 1, verse 5, You've learned of the hope of heaven in the word of truth, the gospel. The word of truth is a phrase that's used to describe the gospel, the good news. The good news of the kingdom of God. The good news that the Lord Jesus Christ came in the flesh, lived a sinless life, died for the sins of his people, rose from the dead, and that all who trust in him will be saved from the wrath of God because Christ has paid their penalty. That's the word of truth. That's the word of truth that caused us to be born again, to be spiritually born. And so it's through that gospel that God has given us spiritual birth. When, when James says that God brought us forth, that's what it's called elsewhere in the New Testament, being born again. Being born again has, has, is a phrase that the culture sort of has latched onto and it just gets thrown out and... You know, you hear about some celebrity and they go, he's a born again Christian. And you're like, well, he's fathered 14 children with nine different women and he's on meth. So I don't think that he is, but he has a Jesus tattoo. Born again is not some trite phrase that just means nothing. I believe there's a God out there and, and I'm vaguely Christian because I live here. It is, to, it is the dead person being made alive. It's, it's a description of regeneration. He, he has caused us. He has brought us forth. By the word of truth. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Just one book over to your right. And we'll see this. We'll see this at work here. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look in verse 23. Peter says this. You've been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. This word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, now just, just put these, these verses, verse 23 and 25, side by side with one another. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And what is that living and abiding word of God that caused us to be born again? Second half of verse 25 says, this word is the good news. 
that was preached to you. The word of God Peter's referring to is the gospel. You have been born again through the gospel. God has given you spiritual birth through the gospel. Peter says the same thing that James is saying here in verse 18 in James chapter 1. That we who have trusted in Christ have been born again through the good news of the gospel. Now notice that the one who caused our spiritual birth is God. God caused our spiritual birth. He did it through the message of the gospel. So God is the agent of the new birth and the gospel is the instrument of the new birth. God is the agent. The gospel is the instrument. Let me just draw our attention once more to the way that James emphasizes God's sovereign choice over our salvation here. Verse 18, he says, of his own will, he brought us forth. That phrase, of his own will, is emphatic in the Greek. It's, it's emphasized, like it's written in bold type, like it's written in all capital letters. James wants you to know this. It was God's will, Christian, not your will, that caused you to be born again, if indeed you have saving faith. Just as you didn't cause yourself to be physically born, you can't cause yourself to be spiritually born. God is the sole agent of the new birth. God is the sole agent of this spiritual gift. The theological term for that is that it is monergistic. It is the work of God alone. God does it. God begins it. God sees it through. God finishes it. If you have new life, it's because God gave you new life. If you have come to believe, it's because God caused you to believe. If you have faith in Christ, it's because God gave you the faith with which to believe in Christ. God is the one. God is the only one who grants spiritual life. And this is essential for us to remember. Because if God did that for us as an act of his own freedom, as an act of his own free choice, then we can trust that he's not going to throw us away. And when, when temptation attempts to deceive us and tell us God's good, but he's not good to, uh, to you, he's tired of you. We can know that that's a lie. We can know that it's not true. The Apostle John writes this in John chapter 1. In, in John chapter 1, and, and flip there with me, the Gospel of John chapter 1. He says this in verse 12 of John chapter 1. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John here makes makes clear with, with three different phrases that the children of God are not in any way naturally born, but instead are spiritually born of God. He says first, the children of God are not born of blood. Blood, here's a plural word. Literally, it's not born of bloods. When two people come together, they form two bloodlines and one offspring. And John says, guess what? That does nothing for you spiritually. That does not make you a child of God. You can't become a child of God by physical birth. You cannot become a child of God because you come from a lineage of Christians. 
faithful, wonderful, God-loving Christians. That does not make you a child of God. Second, the children of God are not born of the will of the flesh. In Paul's letters, that word flesh usually means something bad. That's not how John's using it here. Flesh is just a reference to our humanity. You don't become a child of God through your own human will, through, through your own desires. You can't simply choose to become a child of God. You're not entitled to anything. Third, then, the children of God are not born of the will of man. The deeds, the acts of others, they can't make you a child of God either. No priest, no pastor, no spiritual guru, none of them. No other person can confer on you the grace necessary to make you a child of God. So it's not by natural birth. It's not by human will. It's not by others' action. No human agency whatsoever can cause you to become a child of God. So then, how does anyone become a child of God? John says they must be born of God. Of God. God. God alone must grant spiritual life. And that is precisely the point James is making here in verse 18 of chapter 1. Turn back there with me now. I won't make you flip around anymore. James chapter 1 again, verse 18. When he says, of his own will. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Becoming a child of God is the work of God, but we must recognize that God uses means to accomplish his will. Specifically, James says, the means of the gospel. The word of truth is what God uses to accomplish our spiritual birth. And so the instrument that God uses to cause us to be brought forth, to be born again, To be made spiritually alive, the instrument God uses to create new life is his word. God is the agent, but he uses means. He uses an instrument. He uses the gospel. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Isn't that good news? How then will they call on him if they have not believed? How are they to believe in him if they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing. Hearing through the word of Christ. There it is again. The word of Christ. That's that's a phrase for the gospel. So how does someone come to saving faith? It's by someone speaking with them. It's by someone sharing with them the gospel. That is the means by which God saves anyone who is saved. It's the instrument he has chosen to save his own. If you have trusted then in the gospel, you can be assured that God has granted you this spiritual new birth. You are born of God. You are a child of God. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who are those people? It's the ones who have believed the word of truth. It's the ones who are trusting in the word of truth. And so if that's you, you need not live your life in vain speculation that maybe God has has turned his back on me. I know there was a time where things were good, but now I think I feel abandoned. No, it's a lie. As a child of God, 
James says here at the end of verse 18, you're a kind of first fruits of his creatures. First fruits is an agricultural term. In the Old Testament, it's, it's the first and best part of the harvest. The Israelites would, would give to God the first and best of their harvest as an offering with the faith that God was going to continue to provide everything that they needed throughout the whole rest of the harvest. They gave to God the first and best, trusting in him to bring in the rest of the harvest, which would provide for them and their needs. And likewise, James uses that imagery here it says the new birth that God has given us is a kind of first fruits of what's to come. Our experience of salvation in this life is just a taste. This is just the first fruits of what will come in the future. He is not done with us. The work he has started in us, he will surely complete. He is continuing to transform us. He is continuing to sanctify us. One day he will surely glorify us. He will even recreate his creation with a new heavens and a new earth. And when that happens, there will be no more temptation. Because there will be no more sin. We will be glorified. There will be no more trials. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more failing. So, so, so what does all this have to do with resisting temptation? The answer is this. Christian, the only hope that you have of resisting temptation is the new birth that God has given you. That's your only hope. You cannot successfully resist temptation unless he has previously granted you spiritual birth through the gospel. It's the only way. But if he has done that, if he has done that in you, here's what that means. Believer, you have the power to fight temptation right now. There's no temptation that, that, that will come upon you that you do not have the power by God's spirit through the new spiritual life that he has given you to resist. He has given you a new heart. He has given you a new mind that he is constantly renewing through this same word of truth by this same Holy Spirit. He has given to you even a new will to obey him where once all you wanted to do was disobey him and rebel against him. You can, if he has done that for you. If you are in Christ, then you can resist temptation. All of this means, Christian, you're not powerless. You're not at the mercy of your unrighteous desire and your misery. He has given you the good and perfect gift of new life in order to resist temptation. So keep resisting. Keep fighting. Keep fighting the fight of faith. Keep trusting in his promises. Though you are tempted now, you will not be tempted forever. Though you are in a trial right now, you will not be in a trial forever. We resist temptations by remembering these things. That the, the temptations are liars. That God is good. We remember the power that, that God has given to us. We remember the new life that he has created in us. Which, which means for every single one of his people. For every single believer. Christian, this is you. One day your fight of faith will end in total victory. Total victory. It will be won. 
and it will be over forever. The fight of faith is momentary. The reward of faith is eternal. It's momentary. It's a light and momentary affliction that feels to us, due to our limited perspective, it feels to us like we have been abandoned by God. Like the sun has stopped shining. So we fight that deception with truth. The perspective that scripture gives us, the true perspective, what's real, what's true, what is not deceitful. So James gives us perspective. Perspective in our fight against temptation. He doesn't say everything here that could be said. There's much, much more that could be said about resisting temptation. But that which he has said to us is critical. That which he has said to us is necessary. As we face temptations, we must resist by recognizing the deceitfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of temptation. We must remember God's goodness, his unchanging, faithful goodness. And by receiving the hope that is ours in the new birth. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we confess that we are frail. We are feeble. Lord, we, we do not see things rightly as they are so often. Lord, so often the cares of this world seem to drown out your voice to us. The cares of this world seem to, seem to, to, to blind our eyes to your shining glory. And so we pray that by your word, and by your spirit who dwells within us, that you would give us eyes to see. We pray, Lord, I pray for those who are struggling right now. I pray for those who are facing temptation. Lord, even those who have been giving in to temptation. I pray, Lord, for, for, for the gift of repentance for them. Lord, that you would open their eyes from their blindness, cause them to see through the deception that they've believed. And to run to the cross of Christ. I pray, Lord, for, for my friends who are facing trials, fiery ordeals. Lord, for the ones who feel like they don't know how they're going to go on. And they don't know how they're going to do it. And they, they don't know how they're going to make it. And they hear those words, light and momentary affliction. And it feels to them like that can't possibly be true. Because it's so overwhelming. I pray, God, that by your spirit you would lift their eyes to behold Christ right now their Redeemer, their Advocate, the one interceding for them right now at the right hand of power, the one who has all authority. Lord, I pray that they would trust in your goodness. I pray they would rest in your goodness, that you would grant to them peace that surpasses human understanding. See them through. See them through, I pray, God. We do pray for We pray for healing for those that are in need of it physically, emotionally. Pray for relationships that are damaged. Lord, you know what's going on in each person's life. And we pray, God, that you would intervene and bring a quick end to these trials and victory. But above all else, cause us to trust in you. Cause our hope to be in you. Fill us with the joy that you've promised us in your word. 
Pray, Lord, you'd be glorified in us and through us for Christ's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.